there's some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. And restore control. And now there's a new form of cyber matchmaking, college networking websites. Is this perhaps the next big thing? Same-sex couple will soon be able to head to the altar. The British Martin. people have voted to leave the Bolivia European Union. Is once again President of Russia. A major leap for mankind, said French President François Hollande. I am officially running. Can do for President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. We expect to see the number of cases the number of deaths and the number of affected countries climb even higher. Here we are, folks, another episode of 21st Century Christian, where we endeavor to apply the truth of God's Word to the challenges we face here and now in this, our ever-changing 21st century. Today's episode is entitled Christ in the Classroom. Christ in the classroom and what I wanted to do today was consider some of the obstacles that Christians face in the classroom particularly in the university classroom I know there's lots of challenges faced in all classrooms today in this so-called secular society but I wanted to focus on some of the challenges that university students are facing or if you're if you're if you haven't gone to university yet or in your and you're planning to go what are some of the the obstacles or the objections to your faith that you can expect to um, be brought before you and how do you respond to those how do you respond I know this is a serious issue and we can't pretend that it's not and we can't be unprepared because here's the thing there are so many Christians who go to university and they go to university with a thin theology um, they have the basics let's say but that's it they have the basics but that's it and they haven't been taught how to think to think critically and then the, the, the there are these professors who they idolize who they think are these infallible uh, repositories of knowledge and they attack the faith and and they make the Christian feel small and then the Christian is is brought to this place of doubt and often despair and and all sorts of damage is done and sometimes it's permanent damage permanent damage I want to begin by looking at Hebrews the epistle to the Hebrews and what I want to do is look at the end of, of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 because they're connected as part of the same argument. So beginning in 5, verse 11, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And then in Hebrews 6, 
Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. So these basic truths about Christianity, the ABCs of Christianity, is how we might look at it, they are important. They are the foundation. But they are not all that there is. And I like what Calvin says about this in his commentary on Hebrews. He says, For in building a house we must never leave the foundation, and yet to be always engaged in laying it would be ridiculous. To always be engaged in laying the foundation would be ridiculous. And so if you go to university, you've been going to church your whole life, but all you have is the ABCs of Christianity because you've been taught that, um, you know, there's no creed but Christ, and that's all you need to know. And then you go to university and you're bombarded with these objections that you have no way of uh, defending against. Um, I mean, you're going to be in a pretty tough spot. That doesn't mean that everybody who goes to university with a very basic knowledge and on a diet of spiritual milk is going to be swayed to apostasy. But it's certainly not a, let's say, ideal situation. We are commanded by Scripture to grow in our knowledge and in our understanding. I had a fellow pastor say to me that, you know, I was too in, involved in the intellectual side of things, and, you know, seven out of ten people, or maybe it was nine out of ten people, just aren't, Christians aren't interested in that. And it's like, you know what, that's not a good thing. Like, how is that a positive thing? Nine out of ten Christians are indifferent to moving beyond spiritual milk and actually getting some meat into their diet. How can we be indifferent or apathetic or uninterested in learning more about our faith? I mean, what does that say about us? What does that say about us and how we think about, about God? I um, did a sermon recently on Colossians, and I was talking about Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which is, that hymn which Paul sets forth um, regarding the divinity and lordship of Jesus Christ as exalted above all principalities and powers and thrones and rulers, about him being the creator and sustainer and savior. And I ended with this quote from Spurgeon, which I thought was fitting, and I'm going to read here. He says, Spurgeon said, that the more you know about Christ, the less you are satisfied with superficial views of him. The more you know about Christ, the less you are satisfied with superficial views of him. And let's look at that passage. Let's look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Okay, and, and let's, con let's consider our faith and, and our views of Christ and whether or not we have actually moved beyond that spiritual milk, let's say, or if we are still in a state of, of infancy. Listen to what Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible 
and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him everything he might have, the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is a profound declaration of who Christ is. That is something that we cannot fully comprehend, but is certainly something that we cannot ignore. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And so when you say things like, I have no creed but Christ, or all you need as a, as a Christian is to, to believe in Christ, well, what do you mean by Christ? Who is Jesus to you? We're quick to say that Jesus saves, right? Because he's, he is our Savior, certainly. But he's also our Creator. He's also our Sustainer. He's the Word of God, who is with God in the beginning, and who is, is himself God. I mean, Christian theology, Christian doctrine is so rich. And there's 2,000 years of exploration and exegesis and formulation and doctrinal development and philosophy and theology which mines these riches and we have access to this and how can we ignore it and not take advantage of it so let's say you want to go to school to study psychology or sociology or anthropology or business, or whatever it is, or something to do with medicine, or law, etc., etc., and you pour all this time and energy and money into studying this, and yet you refuse to grow spiritually in those things concerning God. How does that work? How do you reconcile that? We have to, we have to learn because we have to be prepared. We have to be on guard. We have to be prepared. We have to be on guard. We have to be ready, says the Apostle Peter, to always give a defense. Always be ready to give a defense, to provide a reason. That word Peter uses there for defense, always be ready to give a defense, is apologia or apologia. It's Greek, and that's where we get the word, the English word apologetics from. That's the defense of the faith. And so we need to be ready and willing to defend the faith with gentleness and with respect and having set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. That's what Peter tells us to do. And listen to the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, he says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Obedient to Christ. So are you ready to give a defense? Are you ready to give a defense to provide an answer, to give a reason? 
for the hope that you have, for the faith that you have, that you hold so dear, that is the very essence of your identity? I hope you can at least try or make an attempt. So what I want to do next is just sort of go over briefly what the university is, what the university is. What is the ethos of the university? What is the MO of the university? And I think it's sort of shifted and changed and evolved throughout the years. Shifted and changed and evolved. And that's because the philosophies of man are kind of like the wind, uh, waves of the sea. Uh, they're here and there. Um, it's kind of all over the place. And they morph and change and people hop on the latest bandwagon of philosophy etc etc and right now marxism is the big one marxism gets its name from karl marx the um 19th century philosopher and pseudo-economist i guess you might say who proposed a basically a or posited this utopia wherein the working class would overthrow the ruling elite the uh, proletariat they were called would do away with the bourgeoisie and we would enter into this socialist communist society wherein there was no private property and everything was was shared among the people so it you know kind of sounds nice but as we've seen that you know resulted in like a hundred million deaths in the past uh, hundred years so it didn't work out all that well and Marx was no gem of a man either um, but in any case his philosophy has endured and has picked up steam in the universities probably since the 60s or so um, but it's been popular for for quite some time and it's what led to the uh, revolution in the soviet union with the leninist party right when they overthrew the um, empire the russian empire and we know what happened there with with lenin but then with stalin too and how many people he killed how many of his own people he killed and of course at the heart Marxism is a is a radically atheistic doctrine um, that hates religion and God because Marx hated religion and God. And so it's more or less just um, him thinking out loud in a sense and, you know, trying to impose his his views upon the world and and people in their unbelief because they're radically suppressing their unbelief and they they are in open rebellion to God have have obviously picked up this philosophy which has actually um garnered a lot of zealous followers it's very religious because it the people who advocate this they they live and die for this they are all over it like it's a religion and i think that's because we are religious by nature and so we we're always going to find something to which some sort of cause to which to adhere and if it's not christ then it's something else uh, if we're not yoked to christ then we're yoked to the devil and this manifests itself in all sorts of ways and marxism is one of them but marxism basically is a deconstruction project marx thought that everything had to go society the way it was the way it was built had to be demolished and then it had to be put back together again by the by the proletariat or by the i guess people like him people like him the enlightened people like him what we might call today the woke folk 
the people who have all the answers, right? And they know what's best uh, for society. So we have to get rid of all these traditions that are basically holding us back, such as religion. Remember, religion is the opiate of the masses, so it's just this grand illusion that deceives people. So we got to demolish that. And we get got to get rid of all these other institutions like marriage and the nuclear family, etc., etc. And basically at the core of this whole Marxist project is the idea that everyone can be divided into these groups of oppressor or oppressed, uh, victim, victimizer, predator, prey, and everything is viewed through this uh, dichotomy, this duality. And so basically you see this happening with um, critical race theory. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is a Marxist organization, right? And so basically white people, European whites are evil. They're the oppressor. They're the colonizer. They're the evil force. And then the minority ethnicities are the victims of their oppression. And so everybody, if you're basically white, you have this inherent evil within you that you just can't escape. And you actually notice the religious side of this, because as Christians, we believe that you're either for Christ or against him, right? And we do believe in, in original sin that people have. But the difference is, and you see how it's sort of just like a, almost like a half-truth. It's how Satan works. But what we, what we would say as, as Christians, of course, in response to that, is that original sin applies to all men, regardless of their skin color, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Christ, there is no Jew, nor Gentile, slave, nor free male, nor female, right? So we don't make those superficial, accidental properties, such as the color of our skin, the all-important reality. So I think one way to, to challenge this is simply to challenge it at a foundational level, at a foundational level. So your professor is telling you that, you know, you should do this or not do this according to the color of your skin, or this person's bad, this person's good, this person's the oppressor, and they must be overthrown. Um, society, or let's say the working class, must revolt against the bourgeoisie and, and capitalism in all its evil and wickedness. And by the way, I'm not advocating for some sort of, or uh, for the greatness of capitalism here. That's not what I'm saying, but because it's got its problems too, but this whole idea that there's this group over here that that is worse than we are and we're righteous and we need to basically do away with with them and all their evil is a very moralistic argument, right? It's saying that what they're doing by taking advantage of us or of these people is morally wrong. That's the argument, right? So what this group of people did to the other group of people is a wrong thing. So there's a value judgment here. But here's the thing, from this Marxist perspective, this atheistic perspective, where all that is, is the material, the natural, there's nothing supernatural, there's nothing transcendent, how do you define right and wrong? I mean, think about it, it doesn't make any sense. All you have is subjective opinions, what you call moral relativism, moral relativism. So what you're saying is that we are right and you are are wrong but why would that be the case objectively speaking you see from a christian worldview we have a standard that standard is god and he dictates what is right and what is wrong and that is an immutable unchanging reality that goes beyond the human being 
It transcends us. It is beyond us. It is not something that we can alter. It is not something that we can alter. From the opposite view, from the unbelieving perspective, think about this. We human beings are nothing but hairless monkeys. We're smart monkeys. Our ancestors were fish and bacteria. And we exist in this meaningless, purposeless universe, which is headed towards oblivion. And our primary instinct, our primary mission, is to survive and to reproduce. Or you might say sex and sandwiches. There is no logical warrant to suggest from this perspective, from this worldview, that there would be such a thing as objective right and wrong. Now, there might be opinions. You say, well, I don't like that. Or I don't like this. Or that's right, that's wrong. But it's just an opinion. And so it's no different to say, um, if I'm, let's say, this oppressive group and I am rounding up all these people to kill, I mean, to me, it's my opinion that what I'm doing is just. I'm justified in my actions. And that's what all these groups in the 20th century have said. They, they, you know, it was for the greater good. Even the Nazis, what they were doing when they were killing all these so-called undesirables, they thought it was for the greater good of the German people, the greater good of the Reich. And this was largely built, the premise of this was largely built on atheistic philosophy. So what happens when you get rid of God? When Nietzsche, the philosopher, German philosopher Nietzsche, says God is dead, then what happens? Well, there ensues moral relativism, where you say, I am justified. The ends justify the means. I am fighting for the greater good. And all of this makes sense if you're an atheist, really. I mean, ethical rules about right and wrong are just what has been come up with by a certain society, a certain culture or civilization at a certain time, right? They're man-made laws. And it's, it's wrong for one culture to say to another culture, you can't do that or practice that because that's your right to come up with your own ethical principles. But you might notice here the problem with that because th this is called, by the way, cultural relativism, cultural relativism, where you basically say that ethics are a matter of convention in a given time and place amongst a certain group of people and they have practices that they believe are right and wrong and it's wrong for me as an outsider to say let's say I'm in the west and I I think about what's going on in the Middle East to women in the Middle East with their um, genital mutilation and stuff like that well that's just you know the cultural relativist might say well that's just their convention and we can't stop it but here's the thing why would it be wrong for me to stop that convention. You see, you're assuming from the start that there is an objective morality. You can't escape it. We, and also on an individual level, nobody lives as though everything is morally relative. Nobody lives like that. You know, when someone steals your car, it's not like, well, he, you know, it was right for him, so... Uh, who am I to, to, to make a judgment? That's just, nobody lives like that. 
And so we can counter that moral moral relativism and say, okay, you're making these judgments about what these people over here are doing to these people over here, but why would that be wrong, objectively speaking? What is your standard for right and wrong? Because what it looks like right now is you're just making an opinion, and you're imposing your opinion. You're actually being the oppressor in this case. You're saying that my voice, my opinion is better than your voice and your opinion, and I am speaking for the greater good. Well, what is good? What is bad? What is evil? Where do you get these from in this in this society that is material, in this world that is materialistic and nothing but the result of blind chance? And we're just matter in motion. We're just, let's say, uh, bags of blood and bones floating around a, an indifferent, you know, universe on its way to oblivion. Why would these things even matter? But you can counter that with the Christian worldview and say, look, we have a foundation here, an ethical foundation with real principles of right and wrong and human value. Because here's the thing, from an atheistic perspective, human beings don't have, have value inherently. You're just animals. You're just stuff. That's all you are. Human beings are just stuff that just randomly appeared and came together. But you and I are just, I mean, think about what the human being is. There's no soul. There's no soul from an atheistic perspective. It's just stuff. And there's no, the, the human being has no more worth than the ant. The ant has no more worth than anything else. Nothing has any inherent worth. But as Christians, we know that everyone is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. And that is something that cannot be erased by anyone. By anyone. And so that's huge. That's something that the, the Christian faith has to offer that the academy does not have. That cannot offer if they maintain a materialistic worldview. Another objection you'll see arise from the university professor is this argument that it's arrogant to assume that there is one God and only one true religion revealed in the Bible, this old book, which is only the product of man's mind, right? But we just have to, to stop there and, and realize this. If you're an unbeliever, okay, you're not illuminated by the Holy Spirit, obviously you're going to see the Bible as the product of man's mind and man's mind alone, especially if you're starting from a materialistic foundation. So you've already made up in your mind that there is no supernatural or that there is a God, we cannot know him. You've decided that already. And so all your conclusions are going to be based on those assumptions. But why is it the case? Why wouldn't there be one God? Why wouldn't there be one true religion? Why wouldn't the Bible be inspired by the Holy Spirit? What argument do you have that there cannot be only one God who has revealed himself? Why would that be the case? We would expect if our God is good, if he is benevolent, if he is our creator, if he is concerned with our well-being, that he would make himself known and that he would be knowable. And in fact, if we look at scripture, if we look at, let's say, Romans particularly, um, we go to Romans chapter 1, 
we need to consider what Paul says here in terms of the knowledge of God, because people will say, well, there's no evidence for God's existence, etc., etc. But here's what Paul says. He says to them, the wrath of God is, this is 118, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Then he goes on to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as a God nor gave him thanks, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And here is a very relevant passage. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Everybody has knowledge of God to some extent. You can't escape evidence for God's existence. Scripture makes it very clear that we maintain that knowledge of God, which is clearly visible through the created order, and we also maintain that knowledge of God via the fact that we are made in His God and His image. We are de- completely dependent upon our Creator, and so we can't escape that knowledge, that divine sense, that sensus divinitatis. We all possess it, and what we're doing is we're suppressing it. So your professor who who goes on and on about how wrong Christianity is and how there's no God or whatever or whatever, they're simply just suppressing the truth in unrighteousness because ultimately it's not a matter of evidence, it's a matter of sin. It's an ethical matter at the end of the day. We were talking just before about right and wrong. Well, that's what this is about. If you love sin, you're going to suppress the truth of God so that you can continue sinning and avoid a guilty conscience. And people will come up with all sorts of unbelieving philosophies and intricate systems in order to combat the knowledge of God and combat the reality and truth of God, which is everywhere present at all times and which they cannot escape no matter what they do. Now, here's another challenged unbelieving thought okay so it's it's it seems to me that it's it's common sense that there is an intuitive way of looking at things where we know that everything every effect has a cause right every effect has a cause and that's the law of cause and effect so one of the arguments that is is put forward for the existence of god which I think makes sense logically and I think intuitively it's very reasonable, is that everything which begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, right? So everything begins to have everything which begins to exist has a cause. That's the first premise. The universe began to exist. The universe came into being at some point. I think most people would ascend to this fact. Therefore, the universe has a cause. So if it began to exist, it must have been caused by something else. Now, someone might say, well, who caused God? Well, God is uncaused. He's the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, right? That's what makes him God. But everything which began to exist that came to being at a certain point had to have a a cause. And that's the same for you, for me, for anything else. Nothing just comes into being out of nothing. We've never witnessed that happen. You don't just see horses and cats and dogs just poof popping into existence out of nothing 
Because here's the reality. If ever there was nothing, then nothing there would still be. That's just a basic foundational premise that I think any, any reasonable person should be able to wrap their head around. Everything which begins to exist has a cause. Things just don't, poof, pop into existence unless by divine fiat. Unless God decides to bring them into existence. And that's why the author, well, Scripture begins with the, the central idea of creation ex nihilo, or creation from nothing, when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it goes on to talk about how he created. But also we read Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So it wasn't as though there was this material floating around, because then at some point, and then God just sort of organized it together, because where did that material come from? And what about this idea of the Big Bang? Okay, even if you say the Big Bang happened, well, if there's a Big Bang, there needs to be a Big Banger, as I've heard it been said. And where is all this material that banged? Where does it come from? Where did that material come from? There had to be something in order for there to be an explosion, right? If ever you've seen something explode, let's say, well, that explosion doesn't happen in a vacuum. There was something there. But ultimately, we have to make this clear. Well, a couple things I want to make clear before we finish. One, we have to love people. Even those ardent, zealous, unbelieving people who hate God. We need to, we need to love them. We need to show them an alternative. We need to respond to their hatred with love and with kindness and with care. Because we know who we are. We know that we're secure. We're eternally secure. And we want them ultimately to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. A full knowledge, a true knowledge of the one who spoke the world into existence and who created the world and sustains the world and redeems us from our sinfulness and gives us freedom, true freedom in him. That's what we want people to believe. And we also need to remember that we can't persuade someone ultimately. We're not the ultimate cause of someone's belief. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And there are people who are not going to believe and who are going to maintain their unbelief. But we still have to provide an answer. And we do so, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, with gentleness and respect. That doesn't mean we aren't bold in our declaration or stand firm, but we know Jesus is Lord, and we've set him apart as Lord in our hearts, and this is the foundation from which we draw. He is the well from which we draw the source of our knowledge and our truth. We know that all wisdom and knowledge is wrapped up in him, in the Christ, and so we must do our apologetics. We must defend the faith with that in mind and never lose sight of that. And so when we do apologetics, I think it's important that we do what I like to think of as a gospel apologetics. Because our ultimate goal, our ultimate end, is to see people come to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said to his disciples, I will be with you even until the end of the age.
hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of 21st Century Christian. It's a privilege and an honor to, to minister to you. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange is available on all the major podcast platforms. And be sure to check out thegreatexchange.ca. Uh, the podcast episodes are available there also. And also coming soon is some merchandise that you're going to want to check out. So make sure to subscribe and tune in next time. God bless.